1: Hey, Ben, I know you thought Sundance was over, but we are keeping it going. We are keeping it going. We are Sundance 2022. We've got another episode here with uh, documentary filmmakers, and we are going to kick it off right now with the filmmaker behind To the End, which is Rachel Lears. Excellent. Rachel Lears, cinematographer, director of the new movie To the End. Thank you so much for coming on the Cinematography Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Hey, you've got a new movie, uh, To the End, which is now at uh, Sundance 2022. I I could get into this and give everyone my sort of little synopsis of the movie, but I think they want to hear you do that. Tell all our listeners uh, about your new movie.
0: Yeah. Well, so To the End is the story of four remarkable young women of color who are fighting for a Green New Deal, which is an ambitious and bold plan to stop the climate crisis and solve economic and racial inequality in the process. So we follow them over the course of three years through a real roller coaster of volatile historical moment. You know, we've seen street protests, street level actions to the halls of Congress, and they really ignite a historic shift in climate politics in the United States. And the film explores what it takes to have the courage to act in the face of the overwhelming nature of the climate crisis.
1: It's a fun watch, although I've got to say, you know, I'm a lefty and I really enjoyed it. And what do you say out there to people who are maybe science deniers, are climate deniers uh, who, who might step into a movie like this is this absolutely their kryptonite the worst the, the thing they're not going to want to see do you think that it is reaching across to try to expand viewpoints or what's your thought when you're making a movie like this you know documentaries always have the perspective of the filmmaker it's it's just almost impossible unless you're you're really just trying to be the fly on the wall and but even in that sense there's always a perspective what's your perspective for inclusion and in trying to get everyone to, to see this movie?
0: Yeah, it's such an interesting question and one that I think about a lot. You know, there's a, a few different ways to answer it. On the, on the one hand, so we are creating a character-based narrative that has a lot of narrative drive. We try to make uh, documentaries that, that feel like fiction films. So you're watching um, people go through these really um, big emotional journeys and, and that's that there's a level at which that's universally accessible, you know, whatever your politics, I had a, a lot of uh, positive responses from people on the, the right end of the spectrum about knock down the house. You know, we'll, we'll see what happens with this film. I personally, you know, I'm, I also consider myself a lefty, you know, I I don't try to hide that, but I would love to see a film in this style made by and about conservative activists, really getting inside their worldview and what makes them tick as human beings, you know, what drives them. Even if I disagreed with them, I personally would find that really interesting. So I hope folks will check it out even if they disagree. Now there's a couple other ways of looking at this question. And one of them is that with the climate crisis, There's just no doubt anymore. The most recent UN report says there's 100% certainty that humans are causing climate change and that there will be disastrous consequences if we don't act in a big way soon. So there's really no more debate. Anyone who's engaging in that sort of debate is really falling prey to misinformation or else they're actually actively working with or in the employ of the fossil fuel industry. And as you'll see in the film, there's a strong correlation between the talking points of the fossil fuel executives and the ones that we we do hear coming from the Republican Party and also elements of the Democratic Party that are opposed to climate action.
1: That's that's I'm just gonna interrupt you for one second. Sure. That scene you mentioned is it's gotta be a highlight of the movie, at least at least for me, but I think for many people, to watch the oil executives sitting there under a microscope and having to squirm in their chairs being unable to answer the things that they know are true. Which is uh yeah, it's a really wonderful, brilliant little moment of the movie. And, can I say uh, one
0: thing about that scene?
1: Yeah, yeah please, please yeah, interrupt so me. Go jump
0: it, in. No, it's it's such an interesting scene. It's one of my favorites. I actually didn't shoot it myself because it, it was a hearing I I did have have a press credential to be able to get into all of the hearings and spaces in the Capitol that I needed to for this film. But that one was closed to press and they had uh, a pool recording through C-SPAN. So I got to sit in the basement room with the C-SPAN folks who were were operating the cameras and it, it was shot on four cameras. I was recording it on four decks. And the executives decided to literally phone it in. They decided to do it remotely at as opposed to being in the room, and it was reported that they did this in order to avoid a cinematic, a quote, cinematic confrontation, right? (laughs) Um, So our job was to make it a cinematic confrontation anyway, so we recorded all four cameras over six hours and edited it down into a little cinematic nugget.
1: Well, uh, mission accomplished. That, that That's great. You know, and spoiler alert for everyone who hasn't seen this movie, you know, the climate crisis is solved and everyone's happy and there's millions of jobs. But no, no, r- really, the, you start off with the movie with, I think, a, a very appropriate quote, which basically says, uh, and I'm not going to spoil this for anyone. If, if you want to spoil it, you can, but that we are in a time of transition. This is a time of transition between, you know, old world and new world and I'm reminded of that throughout the movie, that there is this old guard that, that is not going to be able to maintain their control of the way things are forever. And the world is going to be inherited by people who are not going to accept it. Can you speak a little bit about to this time right now and how what that means in your movie?
0: Yeah. So even though the film was started in 2018, it really, the story goes up to the minute. The, the final scene was shot two weeks ago. It really speaks to this historical moment. And, and I just think the, the existential anxiety that a lot of folks are experiencing now with the interlocking crises that are very plain for everyone to see. So while we were making this film, you know, we started before the pandemic, it's all all of that, that sense of impending doom has just gone through the roof for everyone, of course, in the last two years. But the climate crisis, even on its own, just provokes a sense of dystopia or or the coming apocalypse, right? These are this is oh it's almost become cliche to talk about it like that. And of course, there's plenty of disaster movies that treat it that way. But um, we really wanted to play with that idea of dystopia in the film and also juxtapose that with the utopian visioning that our protagonists are doing as they try to imagine and build alternative futures. So the film plays with some aspects of science fiction genre in a few different ways. And we're really trying to create this sort of epic story of courageous young people confronting dystopian dimensions of the media space and, of course, the climate disasters themselves and and even the the Kafkaesque world of Washington, D.C. politics is this sort of dystopian dimension that they have to confront and do with it what they're able to. And, and by doing that, you know, we're, we're, what we're trying to do is engage viewers with the cinematic world, really kind of get swept up in it, you know, whatever they may think about these issues or what the political solutions to are, are to them or what any kind of solutions are, you know, whether they care or not, you know, really get swept up in this story and so that they can then maybe imagine themselves as taking part in changing the future.
1: Let's shift gears just a little bit. You're a director and cinematographer. And I always think that's really interesting because it causes you to bifurcate your brain in a particularly, I think, uncomfortable way for a lot of people, myself included. You're not just concentrating on the visuals. You're concentrating on what's being said. You're concentrating on how everything is having to fit into it. You don't just have one job. Can you can you s- explain a little bit how you're able to accomplish this, how you're able to – is it is it just practice? Is it just, you know, th- all the, the thousands and thousands of hours that go into it, the 10,000 hours? How do you handle the directing duties and the, the cinematography? Duties uh, merged into one.
0: Yeah, well, it started off as as necessity. You know, many years ago, I, I you know, I guess maybe fifteen years ago, when I was really starting to work in documentary, it's certainly easier and less expensive to shoot your own stuff. And I I had been doing photography. I, I've been doing photography since I was a kid, and I, I I'd studied it a bit in in college, and I've sort of you know taken that seriously for a long time, and so that was just intuitively something I was interested in was was cinematography, uh, verite cinematography in particular, and I think that the intimacy afforded by being a single-person camera operator Uh, has a lot of advantages, especially with fast moving stories with, you know, small New York City apartments when you got to hop into cars with people or also in during the pandemic when we were trying to minimize the number of people on set on any given situation, just any given shoot for safety. Of course, you know, I sometimes wonder what's better, what's worse? You know, know, of course, there's an advantage to separating the brains of the director and the cinematographer, but there's always also an advantage to sharing that brain. Uh, it's, it's there's pretty quick transfer between the directorial and cinematography uh, observations. It's a lot to take care of in this film. You know we had some other fantastic additional DPs, particularly Ray Whitehouse, who was our our man in DC. You know he didn't shoot everything that happened in DC, but a lot of times there were things happening, particularly sunrise movement actions that that would happen with little notice, and and he was able to get there when I wasn't able to from New York. So. So the film has both. You know, there were times when when I was was giving those those directions to others, but but to me, it's just a, a real, the the observational cinematography of verite film. Being a director who has that intimacy with the protagonists is is really a a huge part of my practice.
1: You know, you, you bring up D.C. and D.C. is notoriously a difficult place to shoot. Uh, it's difficult to to manage the logistics. And you have so many locations. I mean, you you start off in Paradise, California, you go back to Paradise, California and probably 100 locations in between. Can you talk a little bit just about the logistics of this movie and how I mean, I know you made it made it over the course of years, but how that all comes together and how you work with a, a team of camera people or field producers or, or how what's your process?
0: Yeah. um, Well, I haven't uh, worked with so many other people before I, you know, in most of my previous projects, I've shot most of it myself. But for this, just because scheduling wise, there were things happening at the same time or, you know, we started the film when I was in the middle of promoting Knock Down the House and releasing that. And I just sometimes couldn't be there. So it was a a great learning experience, you know, working with with a lot of other fantastic DPs. And I, I think you know, D.C. presents a really interesting challenge, particularly because you're making cinema in the conditions of journalism. And it's just really tricky. I mean, people gave me a, a lot of funny looks when when I was uh, doing a lot of that shooting in D.C. I was always taking shots of other reporters uh, because the, the media is a, a theme in the film that we develop in, in many ways. And they were always giving me these weird looks like, why are you pointing your camera at me? Like, you should be like, we're all pointing over there. But yes, but we got what we needed uh, to tell the story. And it, 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 it was a film with a lot of challenges, but we got it done.
1: Let's talk a little bit about, you know, sort of the life of the movie. It's getting its premiere right now at Sundance. Is that, is that correct? Is that Yes, it is. So uh, premiering at Sundance, do you already have a I, I know that uh, Netflix was uh, involved in Knockdown Down the House. Do you already have a distribution and plan for To the End or is it all sort of still uh, in limbo? we do not have a distribution plan yet we're very excited for folks to
0: see the movie and and see who's interested
1: that that's great what's your hope for this movie where in your wildest dreams do you do you hope to see it in 2022 or yeah where where is it going
0: yeah, well, I, I, I don't know. I don't know where it's going. I mean, I do prioritize audience. I, w- I want to reach the largest audience that that we can with this film just because of the subject matter. And of course, most filmmakers do. But, um, you know, I think it also really matters to have a distributor that's excited about it. This is a film it, with a dark story, with a difficult story. It's not as feel-good a movie as Knock Down the House, although there are layers of inspiration in there so you know aside from audience and and impact i I really just want to find somebody who's excited about it who understands all the artistic layers that we're working with and who's who's excited
1: to bring it into the world with us so uh I know that it was a race to the finish for this movie and that you just spent, uh, you know, years of your life making it happen. Do you think for your next project you want to take on something that is uh, equally ambitious, more ambitious, less ambitious? What effect did uh, did making to the end ha- have on you and, and for your your future filmmaking plans?
0: That's an interesting question. I I, I am not sure. I, I in some ways I feel like I could do just about anything after this because it was really difficult. But I want to take a, a, a little bit of a break to, to think about it. And I'm really going to focus on, on getting this film out there. We're also going to put together a huge impact campaign to make sure the film can be used strategically with movements, trying to engage people in participating in the democratic process and and being part of trying to change the conversation around climate action. So so there's gonna be a lot to do and I have a, a lot of ideas in the works for, for new projects, but nothing fully fully baked yet, nothing shareable quite yet.
1: Um, I'm cynical. You know, I I watched I watched your movie and I felt like this is great and it, it appeals to me, but There's a part of me that is so cynical. I I I feel like I have not ever seen real substantive change the way that it's being talked about in the movies. Certainly not in like something like the the Green New Deal or now the Build Back Better. But what do you say to cynics like me? What do you say? What's 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 that about?
0: What we're dealing with here is you know the climate crisis and and everything that uh, all all the inequality that interlocks with it can be so overwhelming and. Uh, What I really want is for people to, to watch the film so that so that there's that they can have an emotional experience of processing that. Um, You know, the film offers this really relatable story of young women finding the courage to act in the face of this enormous enormous set of obstacles and, and and this enormous uphill battle. But you know, we haven't reached the apocalypse yet. There's still so much that we can do to build a better world and to use this inevitable transition that's going to have to happen in our society and our economy away from fossil fuels to build the kind of society we want rather than just kind of let it all happen around us. But it really does involve engaging with politics in the United States. There's just no way to stop the global climate crisis without engaging with politics in the United States. Um, so I hope that people will take a look at the film and be drawn into its world and, and come out with some new ideas about how they can participate. As spoiler alert, the film does not document an, an enormous, transformative legislative agenda getting passed in the United States. But I think we need to understand how close we came to doing that. And, you know, it's not over till it's over, uh, it, and it's not over. There's there's still time. There's always a choice about, uh, as Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez says in the film, where are we steering the ship? But I think that we're, we're also bringing in history to this conversation in two ways. First, by showing in a historical sequence that these huge transformative changes in the midst of crisis have happened before in this country. The New Deal of the 1930s was exactly a response to uh, an economic crisis and it was transformative. It is possible to put millions of people to work in the midst of a crisis. World War II, same deal. And the, the other way, I, I, mean, I don't wanna give it away, but there's a, a in the last scene, one of our characters brings in a really moving sense of her personal legacy and just what the people that in her family and people that she is descended from have been through in American history. And if, if, and you know, if she's looking at it, it gives her strength to imagine moving into the future and continuing to be part of, you know, she doesn't have the luxury of cynicism. Basically, I would say that young people that, that the young people that we're focusing on in this film and you know, young people. of of color in particular, don't feel like they have the luxury of cynically just giving up on this. There's always going to be a reason for them to be in this fight. And to be honest with you, you know, I, as the mother of a young child, I have a five-year-old, I feel the same way. I, I have to believe that something is possible, something better is possible. So the film documents that and folks can do with it what they will.
1: Well done, Rachel. And thank you so much for sitting down on the show here and giving us a little more insight in, into your movie. Thank you so much, Ilya. All right, so that was Rachel Lears. Thank you so much for being on the show, Rachel. That was great. All right, next up, we have the filmmaker behind the new Sundance documentary, TikTok Boom, all about TikTok. It's Shalini Kantaya. Excellent. I'm joined now by Shalini Kantaya, the uh, director of the new movie TikTok Boom, which is just had its premiere at the Sundance 2022 Film Festival. Shalini, welcome to the Cinematography Podcast.
2: Thanks so much for having me.
1: You've made a documentary about TikTok at its core, which is really an exploration of the social media platform, as well as diving into some of the controversy that exists around the app and the Trump administration. Can you give just our, you know, the log line or the 30 second elevator pitch for our listeners so they they know a little bit more about your documentary?
2: Yeah, TikTok explores the cultural phenomenon of the social media app TikTok and how an app best known for teenagers dancing becomes the center of national controversy and geopolitical controversy.
1: So I got to ask you, the title, the title, TikTok Boom, it's very, very similar to Tick Tick Boom, which of course came out this year. Is this completely happenstance or or were you totally aware of it when you went down this path?
2: That is happenstance. And we knew it was coming, but we liked the title so much. It was just, it felt like the perfect title for the film.
1: Gotcha. All right. So uh, how long is this film in the making? Documentaries notoriously take uh, a very long time. How long were you in production on this?
2: They took a really long time. This film was remarkably at light speed. It was under a year. Wow. It was uh, nine months in the
1: making. Wow, that, that is remarkably fast. Can you talk a little bit about the, uh, the process of getting this film made? I mean, every documentary, every movie is a challenge, but you know, I'm sure you faced some unique challenges when you were going through this. T- uh, talk a little bit about what it took to get from idea to the final product.
2: Well, I think that all of us on my film team are seasoned professionals, but I think all learned in 2021 how to make a film in a pandemic. And so I think that we all had to learn new ways of working together in order to adhere to new protocols. And so I think that that was one of the challenges making the film. Uh, especially because it took place in five countries.
1: Yeah. I got a couple of questions about the movie itself. One, did you approach TikTok to participate? Were they, uh, did they decline to participate in this documentary?
2: They declined an on-camera interview uh, and they did give a list of written questions. And we do use an excerpt of that in the film.
1: Mm. Gotcha. Yeah, I wasn't sure because I didn't see an on-camera interview with anyone. I wasn't sure if they were tepid in their response or if they were enthusiastic about it, because ultimately, I feel like your documentary, despite exploring controversy, seems like a real celebration of TikTok and the people who use TikTok. I mean, is that fair to say?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that it's definitely a celebration of the Gen Z creators that have taken to this app and the story of their creativity. And the way that that is changing world culture. I mean, I think that there is a story there, but I would rather say it's an exploration. And I think that for me, things, life is about the gray area. It, it really is almost never black and white. And so I think that exploration of TikTok is not one or the other utopian or dystopian. It's, it's a little bit of both.
1: Gotcha. Are you on TikTok? Do you have a TikTok account? Are you a a participant in the uh, TikTok culture?
2: I'm currently not on TikTok, but I was on TikTok during the pandemic. It was very addictive for me and now I'm not on TikTok.
1: Okay. I, I was curious about that because it's so ubiquitous, you know, it's used by billions of people. And yeah, I was curious if, uh, where the line would separate then from documentarian to participant, because, uh, you know, some people might say that you have to have that sort of objectivity, but at the same time, I feel like if you're not sort of in it, how can you know all about it? So I'm assuming that your team must've spent a fair bit of time on TikTok researching and then finding your, your interview subjects and, and everything else. Can you talk a little bit about the exploration of finding Your lead sort of Gen Z creators that you feature in the the documentary?
2: Yeah, I found Spencer X, Deja Fox, and Feroz Aziz through a rigorous research project. And I think that what is common to them and some of the supporting characters in the film is that their lives have all been changed by TikTok. And that is what defined them. And so that is part of the reason they were cast.
1: Gotcha. So how's the reaction been so far to the premiere? Uh, What's the audience uh, reaction at Sundance?
2: Oh, Sundance is always a a very warm audience and and usually quite hospitable to independent artists. So so the response has been quite warm.
1: Oh, good. Do you have plans for a follow up to this? Or do you think that all of the questions uh, of TikTok were answered in your in your documentary?
2: I'm maybe ready to do a different topic. I think that this film is quite a, um, it was quite a mammoth of its own right. And I'm sure maybe other filmmakers have something to offer on this subject.
1: Sure, of course. When I was preparing for our interview here, I did a little bit of searching about the uh, TikTok controversy. It seems to me the number one things that come up about TikTok is controversies of tiktokers themselves of basically gen z behaving badly and cultural sort of phenomenons you know oh this tiktok lied or started a rumor about this that or the other on one level tiktok feels like it is for the youth it doesn't feel like it is for serious topics or commercial interests but Clearly, through the proof of your documentary, that doesn't seem like how TikTok is being used and it's being spread and being used in all kinds of different ways. Do you think that's the future? Do you think that TikTok or social media networks like TikTok are the future and that everyone inevitably is going to be engaging like this for all types of activities, be it political or commercial? Or do you think that really is it's something for the youth and it's something almost like a throwaway, like it's a diversion, like so many other social networks, and it, it will never really expand beyond that?
2: Um, I think that TikTok right now is a major force to be reckoned with on the scale of Google, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, YouTube, any major Silicon Valley player. I mean, it's been downloaded over 2 billion times. It is completely eclipsed Facebook. And I think that while it started as a young person's phenomenon, that's not how it is now. I mean, I, I feel like you see people of all ages on there now, and it really is a force as a world player. And I think what the film seeks to sort of shine a light on are maybe TikTok is or isn't the the future. Maybe next week there's another app, and this app is from Belarus or something, and we have to think about a whole other set of concerns and thoughts around this new app that eclipses something that we know. And I think what TikTok shows us is that this game isn't over, that we're gonna see new players, that they may come from other places in the world, and that we need some sort of common law that would govern not just silicon valley companies but also companies you know from all over the world so that we know that we have certain standards of health and safety using these apps and these products
1: yeah i think that that's a really excellent summary uh one of the the topics that you really delve into is the chinese ownership and also then the censorship primarily of, of the users from speaking out critically against uh, the Chinese government. Do you think that the problem is overblown, underblown? I mean, you, you spend a lot of time in the documentary on this, but it seems like it isn't really a primary concern for most of TikTok's users. How concerned do you think they should be?
2: Well, it's a little different for me because I've spent a lot of time <laughs> um, reading about how ev- our everyday data can be weaponized. Now, that can be true of, of companies here in the U.S., but certainly in other contexts. So I think that question of is there any there there <laughs> is a question that I never quite answered in the documentary. I feel like what is interesting about TikTok is that it was the center of controversy in terms of the military banning it, the Pentagon banning it, other countries also um, taking strong, uh, raising investigations against the company. And so, I don't know if they're any better or worse than Facebook or if there are any added security, national security issues because of the the possibility of the law, the complications of the laws and the fact that the Chinese government has the right to ask for Chinese companies for data and they have to give it to them. And so what I think is that TikTok really got caught in the crosshairs and they operate much like how Facebook operates.
1: Hmm. Tell me about crafting the look of your documentary. It's a lot of sit down interviews and a lot of footage clips. Talk about how you wanted to, what sort of a feelings that you want to evoke and, and emotions from the look of this movie.
2: Well, one is that we knew we had to integrate this sort of vertical video into the film. And so I worked with the director of photography, Steve Acevedo, and the visual effects designer, Zachary Luderashur, around creating distortion and making it look like a, like sort of a distorted glass mirror effect.
1: Anything in particular about the locations in which you chose to have the interviews or other works that were you know, inspirational for this?
2: We used large, open, sort of post-industrial, Mr. Robot style warehouses for the interviews. And for the graphics, we gave everything a pink and blue kind of look, which is a homage to TikTok itself.
1: Cool. Is there an official website right now for the movie? Is there a place that people can follow or subscribe so they can get updates of when TikTok Boom might be coming to a screen near them?
2: Not at this time. I hope to have more news soon.
1: All right, well, hey, thank you so much for being on the Cinematography Podcast. I can't wait to see what you do next. Thank you so much. Every year, the Sundance Film Festival has Thousands and thousands of shorts submitted, and very few make the cut. Uh, I was very fortunate this year to be able to talk to two of the filmmakers behind two of the, I thought, best shorts of the festival. Uh, First up is Carlos Cardona. He's got a television pilot called Cheeky, which uh, I highly recommend, yet you seek out. And then next up after Carlos is Lena Hudson, whose short film Daddy's Girl is very funny and uh, absolutely worth your time. Here we go. I'm joined now by Carlos Cardona, the director of the new television pilot premiering at the Sundance 2022 Film Festival, Cheeky. All right, great. Carlos, thank you so much for being on the show.
3: Yeah, thank you for having me.
1: Hey, you've made a really sweet, lovely Pilot. And I know television pilots is sort of a new thing for Sundance. Tell me a little bit about getting your pilot into the festival. What what was the, the process for you? Did you already have this? Were you making it with the intention of coming to the festival? What was your destination goal for Cheeky?
3: So originally, I wanted to make a feature film about uh, the story about my parents coming to the country from Colombia in 1987, which is what the, our television pilot is about. It's really an alternate version of the Latino immigrant experience. A lot of the content that comes um, not only from Colombia but from filmmakers that explore the Latino immigrant experience specifically from the 1980s is almost always rooted in Pablo Escobar and the drug trade and the violence that was happening in the country and you know even though those things are like a very important part of our recent history it's not what defines us 100% and so I've just never seen something that not only explores the Colombian-American experience, but the Latino Amer- Latino immigrant experience of, you know, what it's like to really try to assimilate to a country and to really forego your culture in order to be American. Um, originally, we were going to, it was going to be a proof of concept or a short film, basically like the first 20, 25 minutes of the film. And when we were writing it, we discovered that condensing my parents' story or condensing their journey was just, you know, a feature film just wouldn't do it justice. And so we decided that instead of aiming for that, we should aim for it to be a series. And so that's when we set out to, to make the pilot and basically, you know, we shot it in the autumn of 2020, this is like sort of in the midst of the pandemic and you know, this before vaccines and, and all of that. And so it was a little difficult to get everyone together. Fortunately, you know, we were able a lot of people that I work closely with and colleagues of mine that I've worked with in the industry, everyone came together to make this happen. And, you know, fortunately, you know, no one caught COVID, you know, nothing got shut down. So we were very fortunate to uh, be able to pull it off, especially considering that we shot it over the course of three weekends. So uh, we were very grateful that nothing serious happened other than just the general existential crisis that you face while making a film getting it into sundance we were very shocked because prior to getting the phone call from sundance saying that we were accepted to the festival we had been rejected from four other i'm not going to say any names but well known festivals and so when we got the call from sundance it was just completely you know surreal i just I just couldn't believe it and it's a shame we can't be in person in park city but regardless you know being part of sundance whether it's in the virtual sphere or in real life in person is just a magnificent opportunity
1: I'm going to paint a picture now here for our listeners, because this is an, an audio medium and not a visual medium, but I loved, I loved Cheeky and I loved the look of Cheeky in, in particular. And I know that you were not alive to live through that time. And I'm sure that you had to watch reruns and stuff to get the flavor, but not only does your pilot look like it was made to be that time, like, like all of your, you know, your makeup, your wardrobe, your set dressing, all of that really feels of that time, it's shot as if it was a television program you were watching in that time. Like in 1987, that's what TV looked like. Like the way that it's staged, the way that it put together. And of course, you know, the film grain and just the aesthetic of it. This is not an accidental thing. I'm sure this must have been your intention. Can you talk a little bit about your intention of the way that this pilot looks?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So we shot the whole thing on 16 millimeter, super 16 millimeter to be exact. Even before writing the script, we were like, this has to be shot on film. Because I'm a huge film purist. Um, anytime that I get the opportunity to view a project of mine with Celluloid, I always jump at the opportunity. So yeah, for us, it was extremely important to shoot on film because most independent films that were shot um, between the period of even the late 60s up until the early 90s, uh, up until the, the 2000s were shot on Super 16 millimeter. And so um, it was really important to you know, hone in on that look because that was the look of that period. And also, you know, we were very adamant on shooting at and with the same lenses that they were using during that period we shot with the Zeiss Superspeeds. And of course, along with the production design, along with the hair and makeup, along with the costume, you know, we all just came together to really just try to really create that look. And a lot of the influence for that look comes from old photographs and family albums that uh, my parents had while I was growing up. I would just stare endlessly at them and was obsessed with the way they look, the way that the world looks so warm, and just so there was just something so nostalgically distant because of just the, the virtue of film. But there was just something, yeah, something hauntingly beautiful about these photographs that I was just obsessed with. And just something you can't uh, recreate with digital, no matter how many filters you use or what vintage lens you put on the camera, it's still not going to look like film.
1: You know, it's not just film, though. And, and you're selling yourself short here because it's not just that the fact that you use celluloid and you didn't just use Zeiss Speeds, You definitely had a zoom in there. Uh, I definitely saw a couple of zooms that were like straight 80s non-servo zooms that were like, I was like, this is exactly like something I would have watched in 1987. And I, I looked at your IMDb and I saw that you've got some cinematography credits. I, I'm assuming that you and your cinematographer, Rand, worked closely together to develop how you were going to stage this thing to really feel like it's teleported out of time if someone told me that this was a television show at that time period and I turned it on I would believe them. I mean and I would believe them I would say even more than some of those like uh, I think Netflix made a a series called like Comrade oh I can't think it was Comrade Brother or something like that which they said was like a 1970s show from the former Eastern Europe and it just completely didn't sell to me at all. Yours sells 100% that this was legit from the time. That's a, r- a real achievement in your pilot and uh, you shouldn't sell yourself short. That is that's magic.
3: Well, I appreciate the kind words. Yeah. Um, yeah. For I mean, Rand and myself, my cinematographer Rand Rosenberg, you know, we're huge cinephiles. We're, I'm a cinephile first and foremost, um, before I was a filmmaker. So we were just, you know, I'm obsessed and my, influ- my influence comes directly from the films of the seventies, from John Cassavetes, some of the later work, color work of Ingmar Bergman with Sven Neifkist, um, Andre Tarkovsky. All of these people, the Cohen brothers first filmed um, Blood Simple, like these films that we watch. or Ken Loach, um, his films from, from the 70s and 80s were a huge influence on us when we were developing Cheeky. And so we took a lot of that aesthetic of using the zooms, of using that kind of color palette that they had with the production design. And that's what we watched. And that's like what was our mindset when we were when we were shooting the film
1: how biographical is this story of your parents? Is it, is it dramatized and somewhat their immigrant story to the U S because it also feels like a story that I would have watched in the eighties. Like everything feels spot on. Even like the actor who's playing your dad, he's almost done up in this sort of like John Oates style of like Hall and (laughs) Oates. And it's like, I keep wondering like how much of it is for effect and how much of it is like you're looking at the family photo and that's it. That's exactly how it was. So, so, so how much license did you take from reality to, to your pilot?
3: I'm going to venture and say that Cheeky is about 95% accurate to their real life story. Of course, there were some things that we truncated or, or we consolidated and condensed, but other than that, I mean, yeah, the look, everything is ripped from the stories that my mother would tell me and photographs and family albums. So it's pretty accurate.
1: Did you get your parents also to consult on this? Did you want to get them involved?
3: Yeah. My, my mother actually helped me write the Spanish version of the script. Um, I'm completely fluent in Spanish, but when I went to, I wrote it in English first because a lot of the people in my crew and a lot of my producers were English speakers. So I wrote it in English first. And then when I went to write it in Spanish for the actors, I kind of had a little bit of a hard time uh, translating the English to Spanish, even though in my head, I knew exactly how it should sound. But then I remembered when I did like a, a first pass on it, And then I did a table read with my actors and my lead actress, Bridget, uh, who plays Cheeky, she was like, this doesn't sound like how you were talking about your mom or when I talked to your mother. And I was like, you're right. It doesn't. It's because I just wasn't able to translate the sayings and sort of little aphorisms or the, or whatever that, you know, was particular to that time period. So I went back and, and asked my mom to help me write the Spanish version of it so I can be very accurate with, with the sayings. And if, you know, if you're a Spanish speaker of your, you know, specifically Colombian and you remember that time period, which a lot of people that watch it do either they live through it or it's their parents or their grandparents, the Spanish that they speak in cheeky is very accurate to the 1980s. And then in, ter- in terms of them watching it, uh, my mother absolutely loved it. I think she she thought it was just amazing. She just couldn't believe that her story is being told is now of her stories being shown, um, you know, around the world. And so, she loved it. My father also is very supportive of it. And yeah, my parents were just, you know, so charmed that I had made this film. Because really, at the end of the day, um, even, you know, we all hope that Cheeky gets picked up by um, a network that will be able to house us or whoever. But if at the end of the day, nothing happens with it, it really is a love letter to my parents. And I'm so proud of it. And, you know, that's that's all I can say about that. Yeah.
1: Do you have uh, an entire show Bible? Do you have a whole. Thing planned out did you make more than just your original pilot what's what's sort of the status of, of cheeky
3: yeah as of right now we have our pilot which really is sort of a proof of concept if we were to get picked up of course we'd probably reshoot the pilot but yeah so we have the pilot we have a, a full pilot script that's a little that's very different from the pilot that is being shown at sundance and then there's a series bible of the first two seasons and um the first season focuses on, uh, you know, their, obviously their experience in Newark and then in Montauk. And then the second season explores uh, a little bit down the line when they're a little more established and have sort of realized their own version of the American dream and, uh, you know, dealing with marital issues and dealing with, uh, you know, the, the, the adolescence of their son, which they didn't think was going to become like a punk rock skateboard kid, but nonetheless, uh, a very American story.
1: Nice. That's great. It sounds like you made this a little while ago. Are you already on to your next project? Do you have something else happening right now? What, what's what's brewing for you, if you can talk about
3: it? I also work in, um, in documentary. And so I've been a little busy throughout the year. But creatively, my next, uh, you know, I would just love to, you know, develop Cheeky and see where that can go because I had another project that I wanted to do that was more autobiographical about my experience growing up as a punk skateboarder in the Hamptons in the early 2000s, and I think, um, I think I'm going to sort of start melding that with Cheeky because it's very much a part of that world, and so I think I just continue making this sort of autobiographical, autofiction uh, work, which I, in the last five or six years of my career, I've noticed that that's, I think that's what I'm good at, so I'm just going to keep exploring that lane.
1: Is there some place online that people can either find you or find Cheeky maybe after the festival if they, if they want to look this up? Is there a, an official website or an Instagram or something like that?
3: yeah um, after cheeky ends its run at the 2022 Sundance Film Festival um, you know we're still going through the festival circuit and you know we'll keep people updated on it but uh so my instagram carlos.cardona um it's sort of like my photo journal my my business card my you know basically everything that's going on in my life uh, professionally is available on there
1: Fantastic. Well, Carlos, I really enjoyed it. And uh, I really hope that it does get picked up for all our sakes, because I I definitely want to see more of Cheeky. And uh, thank you so much for being on the show.
3: Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it.
1: My next guest is Lena Hudson, and her new film, Daddy's Girl, is premiering at the 2022 Sundance Film Festival. It's a short film, and it's a lot of fun. Lena, welcome to the podcast.
4: Hi, thanks so much for having me.
1: Lena, you're a director. You directed this, and correct me if I'm wrong. You wrote this as well.
4: I did. I did. I wrote it as well. Yeah. Y-
1: you know they say that you should write what you know. Is there any personal experience in, in this short film of yours?
4: Um, that's that's a great question. Not directly, thank God. <laughs> and if you see the film, that will make sense to you. Well, please, um,
1: please tell our audience a little bit about about your movie. What, what's, yes. what's the movie about?
4: So it's sort of an irreverent comedy that follows a young woman named Allison, who's a bit aimless, and her father, Robert, comes to help her move out of her wealthy, older boyfriend's apartment. It's about their relationship. It's sort of a small moment in time in their relationship. And it's about...
1: Revenge. Petty Larceny.
4: <laughs> Petty larceny Having revenge. a wank. I, I'm not really sure. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I think I think it's all about all those things. I sort of think about it as like it, it is about the legacy of this familial relationship on someone's like romantic and sexual life. Mm-hmm. Um, and what we are willing to sort of like face and not face. That's
1: right. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, how how do you communicate with a parent about something that is unexpected and intimate? I mean, it's not not everyone has those skills. So <laughs> Or I that relationship very, with their parents. I think very
4: few of us have those skills, to be honest, yeah. P-
1: perhaps, uh, you know, mercifully <laughs> and mortifyingly, yeah, wonderfully, that, that maybe we don't have some of those skills. Yeah, but but yeah, anyway, yeah. Uh, I think yeah. that a lot of people can can relate to the story, and it's, yeah. it's a lot of fun. Can you talk a little bit about, um, you know, this is the Cinematography Podcast, and uh it was shot yeah. by by Fletcher Wolf. and can you mm-hmm. talk at all about your relationship and how you came up with the the look and sort of the style for, for 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 the short,
4: yeah. One, I'll just like plug how amazing she is. She was such a pleasure to work with, and I just like I felt really lucky. We had a very short sort of prep time in terms of the look. Like I had gone through and done a ton of image research on my own before I even talked to cinematographers. I think that is like something I like in a process is just like calling a ton of reference images, like both sort of literal, like, oh, I like how this looks and also much more like metaphorical and just feelings. And I found this Nan Golden book called Eden and After, which is all of these photos of kids and kids with their parents. And it was all of these images of like, that just felt sort of like borderline inappropriate, even as they're like a tender parent and child moment. And I thought those were so fascinating. Those were some of the first like images I shared with her that I think got her to sort of like understand what I was going for. And then the other thing was, we talked about a lot of references, but I had listened to this interview with Kent Jones, who directed Diane, and that was his first movie, which is hilarious. Um, but he said this thing where he was like, I just told my cinematographer that I wanted it to look like Patterson. And I was like, honestly, I love that as a hack. So I sort of just was like, I want it to look like the squid and the whale. That's what I'm going for. And I think just having something like that clear was actually a helpful like anchor for us, especially because I don't, I didn't go to film school. I don't have a ton of technical knowledge. So having something where I was like, Obviously I want it to like be our own thing and I want us to find our own language, but if we can use this as like the basis, I think that will help. And that was, yeah, those were sort of the beginnings of our conversations. And then she really like ran with it.
1: I I think that that's very common in the director DP relationship uh, to to talk about references, to talk about ideas, to talk about uh, other visuals. I mean, there's a uh, there's a website service out there called Shot Deck, which I mean, basically takes movies and allows you to kind of like pick and choose and make mood boards and things. And so to have that common language at the get go from the jump off, uh, just gives you a shorthand. It's like, you know, hey, this is kind of where we want to start. And I I think it's great that you did that. And of course, it's a New York set short and real estate and apartments become front and center in the first few moments of this piece. And I got to say that there's a montage you start off with, which kind of just gives you the lay of the land, everything around there, including a fireplace. And even though everything's on screen for only maybe a couple of seconds, I think you feel immediately, you know, oh, we're in a kind of fancy apartment, like to get from the get go here. Uh, this is clearly a pandemic movie, or at least I think it's a pandemic movie. It's it was oh, probably. Yeah. So uh, but and it's very, very contained. Can you talk about a little a little bit about uh, when you were writing this, when you were putting it all together? Was, was was that very much weighing on you, the the idea of like trying to do something with few people and relatively small quarters and talk about just sort of the logistics of mustering people together to to, to come out and, and make this thing?
4: Yeah, that's a great question. I definitely, that was on my mind while writing. I had sort of been playing around with the idea of like a father-daughter story for a while. And... I think in the spring, I sort of sat down to really just try and like spit something out. And I knew I wanted to make it short and contained and filmable, especially just because COVID was like raging so hard. And and then, I don't know, like late spring, early summer, it felt like all of a sudden there was this moment where like Delta hadn't happened yet and and things were open and blooming and like, oh my God, life was happening again. And so I sort of, my partner helped me produce it and I sort of talked to him and I was like, I think if I just start today in pre-production, we could like shoot this in two months. And I think got really lucky and just sort of bringing on a bunch of people really quickly. And because things were calmer with COVID, having... I I was able to sort of shoot it safely within the like budgetary constraints that I could sort of muster for a
1: short. No one
4: got COVID. I didn't infect Peter Friedman with COVID. So that is something I'm very proud of.
1: I'm sure that he and all the people at Succession are very glad that he did not- Really (laughs) appreciate that. Yeah.
4: HBO should be very grateful to me.
1: And it's a wonderful little moment for for Peter too to to, to play this character. And it looked like he had a lot of fun with it, except for maybe having to you live heavy furniture but other than that (laughs) he looked like he was really having a good time (laughs) don't
4: worry he's acting that that couch is is deceptively light he's just a fantastic actor uh
1: well congratulations on sundance 2022 because you know uh, when you make a short film submitting it to Sundance to get into their program is very much like the lottery. I, I think I heard something like it's 13,000 shorts that get that get submitted or something like that. Some unbelievable number where you can't even imagine that someone is going to watch all these. I guess it's a, it's a team of like hundreds of people who, who go through all these shorts and then to go through their sort of like March Madness of brackets to then finally get into the festival. Congratulations. It, it is a monumental achievement just to get here. And now, of course, it's Academy approved festival. And is your plan for more festivals after this? Do you want to put it on Vimeo? Do you have uh, an idea of what's next for Daddy's Girl?
4: Yeah, we will find, hopefully find a life online. We're sort of like sussing through what the best path forward is for that. But yes, definitely we'll be online at some point, hopefully soon for, for your viewing pleasure.
1: What sort of aspirations do you have, either for this project? Do you, do you plan to expand it? Do you plan to make more sort of daddy's girls sequels? Or Do you feel like it's kind of run its course and it's just its own thing? Or what's your plan for this intellectual property?
4: Yeah. So I am in the early stages of writing a feature version of this short, which was sort of like a plan and not a plan while I was writing it. I felt there was just something in this dynamic and this relationship that felt like it could potentially support like a longer form project. So, and I think I have a way after doing the short, I sort of have a way into this longer idea that I, that I actually really like. So we'll, we'll see, we'll see what happens. Yeah.
1: Lena, where can people find you online if you do any social media or anything like that? Should they want to get more uh, Lena Hudson in their life?
4: Um, Yeah, they can find me on Instagram at Lena Hudson. And I have a website, too, uh, lenahudson.com, So I'm, I'm on the internet, guys. <laughs> uh,
1: fantastic. Well, we're going to put links to those places in our show notes over at camnoir.com. And if uh, you're interested in finding out more about Lena or looking forward to an update of when uh, Daddy's Girl will be available to watch online or somewhere else, uh, please uh, go to our website for those links. Lena, thanks so much for being on the show. It was really, really fun. And I can't wait to see what you do next.
4: Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. This was great.
0: This has been the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening.